0: Well, that's Halloween over for another year. I'm sure many of you say, yeah, great. <laughs> but that, mean, that means that we know what this means, don't we? It means they will have now entered the run-up to Christmas. If, you haven't alre- if they haven't already done so, the shops will be gearing up for the big day. Christmas adverts will be starting on the TV. People will be start putting up Christmas lights and go mad buying presents. Many of you know that we were over in the UK this week and in some of the hotels we were passing, going for a walk one night, we saw they even had Christmas trees up in the dining room already, in October. And just in case you forget when Christmas is, you can check out a variety of websites or even install an app on your phone that will count down the days and the hours and the seconds until that day. I checked out this website uh, yesterday. And it said that yesterday, there was only 1.82 months, or 7.8 weeks, 54 days, 1,309 hours, 78,500 minutes, or just over 4.7 million seconds until Christmas. Or, of course, as kids think, there are only 55 sleeps until Christmas morning. I don't know about you, but I think that's kind of ridiculous, isn't it? It seems a bit mad, all of it. I really would rather not think about Christmas until maybe the week before. Or even just the day before. But maybe we shouldn't be like that. Because, after all, God didn't wait until the last minute to prepare for the very first Christmas day. Down through the centuries, God showed that he was preparing for the coming of his Son, the Messiah. Giving glimpses of who he was, what he was like, and what he would accomplish. The Old Testament contains many, numerous prophecies about his lineage, about his birth, about his life, his death, his resurrection, and the impact of Christ. And so as we run up to Christmas, we're going to look at some of these just from one, one of the books of the Bible, the prophecy of Isaiah. And we're going to look at them and, and, ho- and help to hopefully help us to see and to understand more fully the person and the ministry of Christ. And to accept Him more fully into our lives. The first one we're going to look at is a really familiar one. Because it's part of the gospel narrative of the birth of Jesus. After describing how Joseph... Learned about the true identity of Mary's baby in a dream. Matthew states this in Matthew chapter 1 verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child. And will give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel. Which means God with us this prophecy from Isaiah chapter 7 goes right to the very heart of the miracle of the Incarnation. It declared that contrary to Joseph's assumptions, Mary was indeed still a virgin and that her baby had been conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so this child was none other than than God in flesh. The creator of the world had come to live as part of his creation. The eternal one had stepped down into time. The Lord of glory had humbled himself and become human. The all-powerful one had become a helpless baby. It is an amazing truth. A mind-boggling truth. But when we look back into Isaiah chapter 7, we can see that this wasn't the initial, the immediate meaning of this prophecy. With this prophecy, it was ultimately fulfilled in Christ, but there was also an immediate, a short-term fulfillment for those who first heard it. Initially, Isaiah gave this prophecy to one of the kings of Judah, a king called Ahaz, in the year seven hundred and thirty four BC. Maybe you remember King Ahaz, if you were with us in a, a church weekend away, because he was the father of Hezekiah. Remember that that was the king that we were looking at, that wonderful king that we're looking at on our church weekend away. So this was the time of the, the divided kingdoms. There was the ten northern tribes of Israel who had broken away from the the two southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin to set up their own kingdom. Now the ten northern tribes, they completely rejected God. They would set up their own kind of worship system. And the kings of Israel just led people further and further away from God. But the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, They'd remained loyal to the house of David. And they'd been blessed with some good kings, as well as some not so good. And those good kings helped them keep on coming back to God. But unfortunately, King Ahaz was not one of those good kings. 2 Kings chapter 16 2 says, Ahaz did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, his God. Instead of worshipping God and following God, Ahaz copied the idolatry of all of the nations around him. And they followed the example of the kings of Israel as well. He set up altars all over Judah, encouraging the people to sacrifice to a myriad of other gods. And as a result, disaster struck his nation. So if you open your Bibles up to Isaiah chapter 7, we're going to start reading what happened in the middle of this disastrous situation in this nation. So it's Isaiah chapter 7 and it's verse 1. If you just keep your Bibles open because we're just going to take our time down through this chapter. Verse 1 says, When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezim of Aram and Pekah, son of Ramali, a king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem. But they could not overpower it. For the first time in its history, Jerusalem was under siege. The armies of the, the northern tribes of Israel and also the armies of Aram, which you see just to the, to the north of them, they both had invaded Judah. One of their objectives was to force Judah to join their alliance against the mighty Assyrians, which was kind of the superpower of that era. But Ahaz, the king, had refused to join them. That was because he'd secretly made a treaty with the Assyrians. And so Aram and Israel were trying to overthrow Ahaz, to put a puppet king in his place. So that they could get Judah, the armies of Judah, to join with them in the struggle against Assyria. And this was a disastrous time for the people of Judah. 2 Chronicles tells us that 120,000 of Ahaz's soldiers were killed in battle. Many others were taken captive. And even some of the cities of Judah were captured uh, uh, and uh, and kept by the the invaders now the invaders were surrounding Jerusalem, the capital city. Although they, they were struggling to overpower the city the nation of Judah looked doomed. And this is what verse 2 says. Now the house of David was told Aram had allied itself with Ephraim which is another name for Israel the northern tribes. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken. Shaken. As the forests are shaken by the wind. The situation looked hopeless. Their courage was completely gone. These people were absolutely terrified. The situation was completely beyond what they could cope with. But it was into this very situation... That God sent his prophet, his messenger, his spokesman, Isaiah, with a message of hope. Look at verse 3, please. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out. You and your son, Shear Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field. This upper pool was a reservoir uh, providing water for the city. So Ahaz was probably inspecting it to make sure that the city would have an adequate water supply as they were under siege with the invading armies. But that day, King Ahaz got much more than he expected. We'll continue reading. Verse 4 Say to him Be careful Keep calm and don't be afraid do not lose heart because of these two smouldering stubs of firewood. Because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram the son, and of the son of Ramalia. Kings of Aram and Israel didn't seem like smouldering stubs of firewood at that time. You can imagine, they were anybody in Jerusalem could look out and see these massive armies right on their doorstep. They looked more like forest fires that were threatened to consume to completely overwhelm Judah. But God's message was clear in this situation. Keep calm. Don't give in to fear. Don't panic. Just be quiet. And do nothing. Considering the desperate situation they faced, this seemed like a ridiculous command. You ever been really worried about something and somebody said, Don't worry, keep calm. That really helps, doesn't it? But this was not an unreasonable thing to say. Because this wasn't just an empty, Oh, don't worry, it'll be all okay. This was based on what God was going to do. Verse 5. Aram Ephraim and Romalia's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart, and divide it among ourselves, and make the son of Tabeel king over it. Yet this is what the Sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is only Romalia's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith. You will not stand at all. The kings of Israel and Aram had, had plotted to destroy Judah. Invade it. Carve it up. Place this guy. This guy who was the son of Tabeel. King over it. But God promised that it wasn't going to happen. God promised it wasn't going to take place. In fact, he said within 65 years, Ephraim was going to be too shattered to be a people. This massive army on their doorstep would not even be recognized as a nation anymore. It came true in 722 BC. King of Assyria invaded, destroyed Samaria and exiled his people. Then in 670 BC, 65 years after this prophecy, the king of Assyria imported foreign settlers into the land of Samaria, into the area of the northern kingdom, and destroying all hope that this kingdom would be re-established. But Ahaz wasn't in that 65 years later time. He was in the time when the armies were right on their doorstep. So why could Ahaz keep calm? Why could he not be overwhelmed with fear? Well, it was because of the one who promised this. In verse 7, yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. Those who opposed Judah, that was only resin, that was only pika, that was only men. But the one who declared it wasn't going to take place, that was the sovereign Lord. That was the one who was truly in charge. As Proverbs 19 and 21 says, many are the plans in a man's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. That changes how we look at things, doesn't it? That changes the situations in our lives. That changes how we look at ourselves in the mirror, or we look at our family situation, or we look at the things that we're worried about. When we recognise we don't need to look at those circumstances to work out what's going to happen or who we are. We just need to look at what God says. Because what God says, that's what's going to happen. And so Isaiah wasn't just calling Ahaz to be courageous, to be brave, to be stoic uh, in the face of the struggle. He was calling him to faith. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. That was what was happening to Ephraim, the, the northern kingdom. They had rejected God. They'd refused to put their trust in God. And so they weren't going to stand. They were soon going to be destroyed as a nation. But if Ahaz was going to stand in this dangerous situation, all he needed to do was stand in faith. He didn't need to surrender to the invading armies. He didn't need to run off to Syria for help and said he could just keep calm and trust in the sovereign Lord I wonder if we need to hear that message today do we need to hear from God keep calm don't be afraid just stand firm in my faith in, faith in him in our family situation In a financial situation. In a a difficult relationship. In a difficult battle that we're facing. In a temptation that we're trying to overcome. Just keep calm. Just stand firm. Stand firm in faith. Don't be afraid. Because the Sovereign Lord is speaking into our lives. But we struggle with faith, don't we? Faith is tough. We find it so hard to trust in God. To let go and let God be in charge of our lives. And God knows this. And so God offered Ahaz a sign. Look at verse 10 please. Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign. Whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. God offered Ahaz a sign to encourage his faith. He even gave him the the opportunity to choose whatever sign he wanted. God was willing to move heaven or earth to encourage Ahaz and to help him to trust in God. What an amazing offer Ahaz was given. But look how he responded. Verse 12. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Oh, it sounded so eh, so good, didn't it? It sounded so admirable, Ahaz's response. Ahaz pretended that he didn't want to test the Lord like others had done in demanding a sign. He tried to to pretend that he was so honorable and so trusting that he didn't need a sign from God. But in reality, Ahaz didn't want a sign because he didn't want to trust in God. He'd already made up his mind to trust in the king of Assyria instead of trusting in God. He really was just trying to justify his rebellion against God. And in obedience, in disobedience, sorry, Ahaz refused. But in grace, God gave Ahaz a sign anyway. Verse 13. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child. Will give birth to a son. And will call him Emmanuel. As I've already mentioned, the ultimate fulfillment of this was Mary. Giving birth to Jesus when she was still a virgin. But the immediate fulfilment of this prophecy required an event more contemporary with Ahaz at the same time as Ahaz. This was supposed to be a sign that was going to encourage Ahaz to faith. Something that he would see and something that would encourage him to trust in God in this situation. The sign was that a woman who at that time was unmarried would soon get married would conceive, would give birth to a son, and would call him Emmanuel. Now today, nobody's really sure who this woman was. There are lots of different suggestions by different scholars about who this woman could be. We don't know who who she was. But it seems clear that Ahaz knew who she was. Because he would see this sign, he would see this reality, and he would be encouraged to trust in the Lord. The child's name would be Emmanuel, which means God with us. Even though his people had rejected him, God hadn't abandoned them. Even though their suffering at that moment was of their own making, he still wanted to be with them. He knew about the difficulties that they were going through. He understood their fears and their concerns. He felt their pain. And he cared about them so much that he was willing to come and enter into their sufferings and their struggles. He was wanting to be the God who is with them. And this is what Jesus did the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us he came into a world of disobedience and disaster a world where people had rejected god and we're suffering and we're suffering the consequences of that disobedience but he came to be with his people if you're like me then sometimes we can be tempted to think that because our lives are so messed up, that God would not want to have anything to do with us. That we've fallen away from His plan so far that He would just want to be short of us. But the sign of Emmanuel, both the immediate and the ultimate fulfillment, tells us that even although we've all messed up, and even although we live in a world that's truly messed up, God still wants to be with us. He wants to share in our struggles and in our suffering. He wants to walk with us in our suffering and in our joy. God wants to live with us. But this child wasn't only a a sign of God's presence. He'd also be a sign of God's deliverance. If you look at verse 15 of Isaiah chapter 7, about this child, he will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. Curds and honey doesn't sound very tasty, does it? It's actually the food of poverty. It's a monotonous diet of hard times curds because when young animals die there's a surplus of milk and the uncultivated land of a difficult time produces an abundance of honey so this child was going to be born into a time of poverty but look at verse 16 but before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste Remember, this is a a king who's in a city that the invading armies are right on their doorstep. They are facing this imminent attack. And he's saying that this child, yes, he's going to be born into poverty, but he would signal deliverance from God. Within two years of this promise, Damascus, the capital of Aram, fell to Assyria. And within 12 years of this prophecy, Samaria, the capital of Israel, was destroyed. God was going to remove these invading armies completely. Jesus was also born into poverty, wasn't he? He borrowed a feeding trough for his first bed. He borrowed a boat for a pulpit. He borrowed a coin for an object lesson. He borrowed a donkey for his entrance into Jerusalem. An upper room for his last supper. He even borrowed a tomb for his burial. But his birth heralded the greatest of all rescue missions. Because he will save his people from their sins. So the sign of Emmanuel isn't just a sign that God is with us but it's also an amazing message of hope. It says that whoever we are whatever we have or haven't done God has come to save us. But this child was not only a sign of God's presence And a sign of God's deliverance. He was also going to be a reminder of the reality of God's coming judgment. God had warned Ahaz that if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Trusting in the Lord would bring a great deliverance. But rejecting the Lord would bring great disaster. Unfortunately, Ahaz chose that latter option. He turned away from the Lord and he, instead he, he turned to Assyria for help. And in doing so, he sealed the fate of his people. Verse 17, the Lord will bring on you and your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. The rest of this chapter, if we turn time to read it. would would give details about how Assyria, even although they would bring temporary relief, ultimately they would come and occupy the land of Judah. They would humiliate the people of Judah. They would pull them into poverty and the land into decay. Ahaz, he turned to Assyria and trusted in, in Assyria to be his deliverer. In the end, Assyria was going to be his executioner. This was going to be the end of Judah as a strong and independent nation. And it was going to mark the start of their decline until ultimately they ended in exile. It's a real gloomy end to this chapter. But even in this reality of God's judgment, there's a message of hope. I don't know if you noticed in verse 3, if you flick back to it. Isaiah I was told to take his son with him that day, You and your son share Jashub. His name, the name of his son, means a remnant will return. A remnant will return. It carries with it a warning of judgment because only a remnant, only a small number of the people of Judah would return from exile. Only a small remnant of the whole nation. It also carries with it a message of salvation. Because even in the times of judgment that were coming, even in the times of absolute disaster for this nation, God will still rescue a remnant for himself. Because God was with them. God was going to restore them. Those who turned and trusted in him. And in a similar way, Jesus, as the ultimate Emmanuel, brings both a message of warning and a message of hope. You may remember John chapter 1 and verse 11. It talks about Jesus. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Many people refused to accept Jesus as Lord. They didn't want him to be with them. And the consequences of rejecting Jesus is as serious as it gets. Hebrews 2 and 3 says, How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? How shall we escape if we turn our backs away from God and this offer of salvation through faith in Jesus? And the answer is, we can't. Jesus is God with us. He is God's final message to this world. He is the only one who can bridge the gap between God and man. He is the only sacrifice for sin. The only hope of salvation. So to reject Jesus is to reject God. And to place ourselves outside of God's family. Because there is no other way to, of salvation. If we put our faith in anyone or in anything else but Christ alone. Then we are lost. But John goes on to say in verse 12. Yet to all who received him. To those who believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God. To reject Jesus is to reject God. But to accept Jesus as Saviour and Lord means that we are accepted by God. And so this prophecy of Emmanuel is a message of hope in times of disobedience and disaster. It's a message that says God wants to come into our lives. As messed up as they are. But God wants to rescue us. He wants to transform us. And He wants to be with us forever. But the crucial thing is, it's our decision whether we'll experience this or not. If we reject Him, if we choose to trust in ourselves, our work, on anyone or anything else... Then we will be lost. But if we put our hope in him, then he will be our Saviour. And he will deliver us. This child is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Will we welcome into our lives today?